Good morning. It's DJ and PK. It's 97.5 at 1280 The Zone. Welcome in on a Wednesday morning. The Utes are getting ready to play Washington State Saturday morning, but the news is all about the running backs transferring out. Both Devin Brumfield and Jordan Wilmore are out of here. Into the transfer portal, ready to go. Uh, what does that mean uh, for the depth chart? What does that mean for recruiting? What does that mean for the team right now? Did Kyle try to talk him out of him? Just some of the topics Kyle hit as he met with the media. Listen up. Kyle, can you comment on Devin and Jordan entering the portal? Yeah, they uh, made the decision that uh, it's best in their best interest to move on. Uh, they were great members of our program while they were here, uh, both we're all in uh, all the time. Uh, excellent work ethic, great teammates, great students. And so we wish them all the best. They were uh, major contributors for us. And, uh, but like I said, they've determined that, that uh, moving on is, is best for them. And so we support that and, and uh, want nothing but success for them. Next, we'll go to Josh Newman, Salt Lake Tribune. Hey, Kyle, good morning. Good morning, Josh. Um, were you at all surprised maybe by the timing of that, you know, the beginning of a game week, there's still one game to play, maybe two. Did that at all surprise you, just the timing of it? It did, but once they uh, explained their situations and, and uh, the, the uh, thought process that they had, uh, you know, I, I somewhat understood. I still wish that uh, – and we still wish they would have uh, finished out the season with us. But, uh, they're done with their academics. Everything was in order. They had – some uh, things that uh, need to be done that they can only get done this week. And so uh, that's what they decided to do. But yeah, we sure, sure wish they would have uh, been able to finish out uh, this regular season, but uh, that wasn't the case. Just a quick follow-up to that. You had said last week that, you know, when you have a recruiting class coming in, you still like to keep a couple scholarships just in case things happen. Is this a case of, hey, now things are happening and it's good to have a few left over? Exactly. This exact scenario is why you keep a couple, two or three in your pocket, maybe four. And uh, there's going to be more change, as I mentioned uh, yesterday, with the likelihood of uh, the one-time transfer becoming approved next month. That would be, I think, the percentage. Percentages say that will happen. Then uh, you got to be ready to uh, replace guys that uh, leave, and if a certain position gets depleted, you got to have you got to have a, an opportunity and ability to respond and, and uh, get that position uh, taken care of. And so, yeah, that's that's going to be our MO going forward until until the rules change. Next, we'll go to Patrick Kinahan, twelve eighty the zone, followed by Ryan Costeca from SI.com. I'm wondering if a kid goes into a transfer portal, whether he's from your school or another school, do coaches say like a kid, these two kids use them for examples. Well, well, coaches from other schools, will they reach out to you for sort of like a reference? On occasion, not always, but on occasion, uh, particularly if there's a relationship with the coach that uh, is interested in these players and, uh, you know, if they don't reach out to me, there's a good chance they'll reach out to one of the assistants. You know, if there's a if there's a tie uh, between a coach on the, the staff that is looking into the player and, and considering taking them, and uh, a member of our staff, then uh, usually people will exercise that uh, you know that uh, phone call and, and uh, get in touch. And we do the same thing. If there's if there's a someone in the portal that we're interested in, and we have uh, someone on the staff that uh, we know. Uh, 
uh, from the school that he's coming from. We'll go ahead and make contact and, and get some background information. Next is Ryan Costeca, followed by Trevor Helen, KSLSports.com. Hey, Coach. How you doing this morning? Good. Thank you. So uh, can you speak quickly about, you know, Max Borgie of Washington State and how uh, there's a potential that he does return this week against you guys? I mean, just his all-around skill set and what he does to transform that offense? Yeah, he's a good player. He's a really good player and uh, has not been able to to get uh, get on the field this year. And uh, if he comes back, it'll make them a better offense, there's no doubt about it, because he's he's a guy that can do a lot of things. He, he runs the ball effectively, catches the ball out of the backfield, and, and uh, he's a complete back. So if they have him available, that makes them that much more dangerous. Next is Trevor Allen, followed by Steve Bartle of UteZone.com. Kyle, how, how are you, you going to juggle your, your roster now that, you know, no, no one's going to be, you know, charged a year or anything like that, and, and then you have a, a, a class coming in for 2021. How are you able to juggle the roster? Well, there really is no challenge for that this coming fall, fall of 21, because the uh, seniors that opt to come back will not count against your, uh, your 85 uh, scholarship limit. And so the real problematic situation is going to be the next class and next year, the fall of 22, and not so much the guys you got on your roster, but uh, recruiting. There's going to be very little room for new recruits because then everybody counts again in fall of 22, and, and where everyone was frozen for that one year, you're going to still be you know, right up against the 85, basically, when, uh, when you start your recruiting, and, and uh, you can never exceed that 85. And so that's going to be the, the class that's going to be tricky. And so this, uh, this next fall, shouldn't be a, an issue because, like I said, the, the seniors are, are not a, against your count. They're just bonus guys. And then to uh, follow up quickly, um, who, who's going to be your uh, third back now Now that you're down to two guys who've normally played? Who's going to be your, your third running back? Faisal Aiden is a guy that uh, has been in the program for a couple of years. He does a great job. He's been on the uh, scout team uh, up until now, but uh, he'll be elevated to the travel roster. And he will be uh, the third back going into this game this weekend. Next, we'll go to Steve Bartle, followed by Patrick Kinney. Morning, Coach. Good morning, Steve. Um, curious to get your thoughts on the differences between the Mike Leach air raid and the Nick Rolovich run and shoot offense. Are there big differences? Obviously it's the same personnel, but are there differences between the two offenses? Yeah, there is big differences in the route structure. As I mentioned yesterday, the the, uh, personnel groupings and the formations, there's a lot of similarities and uh, the non-use of a tight end uh, or a fullback. And there's very little use if any, uh, that position in those position groups, but, but uh, there is differences between the two, uh, you know, a lot more mess routes, crossing routes with, with Coach Leach and, and the system he employs than uh, with what they're doing at Washington State right now. So the end result isn't a lot different. You know, they're both piled on passing yards, and, and that's the, uh, the primary uh, thing they're trying to accomplish is throw the ball. But uh, there is a lot of difference in how they run the routes and the, the conversions off of those routes. And uh, it's, it's come in and talk for an hour or two on that, but, but there is differences. And there's, there, there are two separate uh, offensive attacks when you look at the route structure. We'll go next to Patrick Kinahan, followed by Josh Newman and Josh Furlong. How disruptive 
is it to a team as it's been this season when you start to play and then you miss a week or two and you can't play and then you got to come back in terms of the flow and just the rhythm of the team when this is happening? It's challenging. And uh, there's uh, most teams in fact, world have had that same disruption that, that we've had and that Washington State had. And a lot of our disruption was all at the front end. And we've been able to, you know, fortunately, continue to play uh, since we missed those first two games. But, but uh, it's uh, it's different than having a buy because if you have buy scheduling, you know, you plan accordingly and you, and you adjust accordingly. But but these uh, disruptions occur sometimes with you know two hours notice, so so you don't know uh, exactly uh, how to plan for it. You just got to be flexible. You got to adapt and. Uh, you just got to continue to uh, stay positive with your guys and, and have your players stay positive. And, and we talked about this at the very onset of the season with our guys, that this season was going to be adversity times 10 when you talk about this compared to a, a typical season, and that's proven to be the case. Josh Newman followed by Josh Furlong. Kyle, in a normal year, you would be getting ready to sign your recruiting class in a week that you're not preparing for a game. You know, you're now preparing for a game – Signing day is tomorrow. How, how crazy ha- has your week become because of that right now? Well, actually, if you're playing an early bowl game, which we have in the past at times, it's very similar to that because we would be practicing this week uh, if it was an earlier uh, scheduled bowl game. But uh, it is challenging to, to juggle the, the uh, signing day as long as, well, as, along with the preparation process of the game. But uh, our signing class, we don't expect, we hope that we don't have any uh, bad surprises tomorrow. We think things will go pretty much as expected, and everybody that uh, is going to join us has already indicated that on social media and publicly committed to us. And so uh, we don't feel that it's going to be much of a disruption. And uh, tomorrow morning we'll be getting most of the letters in. Some will trickle in later in the day, but uh, it, it's doable. And like I said, we've we've had a somewhat similar situation in the past when you're getting ready for a bowl game that that uh, is a pre-Christmas bowl. Next is Josh Furlong, followed by Chris Camrani from The Athletic. Kyle Solomon said that uh, he had a family member that died when you guys were playing in the Colorado game. You know, you're obviously hired to be a football coach, but you obviously have to take care of a lot of these kids that are still young, still trying to, like, grow into their adult years. What's what's that process like for you to be, you know, there to help as, as kids lose family members, or especially this year, the mental aspect of COVID and all those types of things? Yeah, well, it's our job as coaches to be mentors for these for these young men and essentially uh, taking over where their parents left off. And when they turn them over to us, you know, we're responsible to make sure that, that we uh, treat them like our own sons. And that's how we do it here in Utah. And uh, the coaches are responsible to be, in, to be in tune with every aspect of a player's life, not just academics and football, but socially and, and uh, emotionally and, and uh, just everything that goes on in their life we need to be involved with and, and be supportive. And I believe our assistant coaches do a phenomenal job of that. And uh, that's one of the things that's woven into the fabric of our culture here is, is the way that uh, our coaches care about the players and, and put them first. This is a player's first program. Uh, we have a mantra, it's all about the players, and we, we stick to that. And every decision we make and everything we do in this program is geared towards their well-being and their benefit. Following up on that real quickly, you know, this the program's obviously known as a family first. That's what a lot of the recruits talk about, uh, just being able to have that connectedness. Is that is that essentially what it is? Obviously, it's on the field, but it's it's that type of mentality as well. 
without a doubt. And uh, we have uh, pretty much every recruit that comes through here feels it and senses it. Now, that's not going to say they're going to choose Utah just because of that, but but uh, every recruit that we bring on campus gets that feel and, and understands that uh, that culture is very strong. Next, we'll go to Chris Kamrani, and then our final question will come from Steve Bartle of Ute Zone. Kyle, is there a number of running backs that you would like to add to the roster this offseason to challenge Ty going into next year? And if so, um, I assume you exhaust all potential options of doing so. Yeah, we do. And we're uh, budgeted, I guess you could say is the right word, of five to six running backs, scholarship running backs on the roster. And that's where we'd like to get. Six is usually the ceiling and five is the minimum. And so we feel we're going to be able to get there. And uh, that's why you recruit every year. And, and the roster turnover is going to be more dramatic going forward with the, uh, you know, with the change in the, uh, the transfer structure. And so you just got to be prepared for that. You got to adapt. And, and uh, again, going back to the earlier question of keeping scholarships available after signing day, just in case, uh, really comes into play in situations like that. Just as a quick follow-up, is it harder to go out and find guys to challenge and establish, you know, number one, the way Ty seems to have done for himself this year? Uh, I would say with a high school recruit, yes, but with the transfer portal and, and being able to take guys off of uh, collegiate rosters, uh, it makes it more doable. Um, and we're not necessarily looking for a guy to come challenge Ty. We're looking for a guy to help us become a better football team and and uh, improve the roster. That, that's why your recruit is to, is to uh, and that's when you evaluate these guys, can, is this guy going to make us better? Is he going to add to what we're doing? And so that's uh, really the, the bottom line when you recruit a kid is because you believe he's going to add to what you're doing and make you better. And uh, that goes by degree. Some guys are going to make you a lot better right away, and some guys are going to make you a little bit better. But as long as you're getting better, that's the, that's the objective. Steve Bartle. Coach, after months and months of, of effort and, and sometimes even years on the recruiting trail with some of these kids, I'm curious, what's the what's the mood like the day before uh, signing day? Or I should say the early signing period, not signing day, but just what's the mood like before, you know, a day like tomorrow where, where you expect these guys to sign? Well, we're excited for the, for the actual signing to take place. But uh, as I mentioned, our guys have been committed, most of them, for, for quite some time now. And this is just a culmination of a lot of hard work and effort. And uh, it's good to, it's always good to get them uh, officially in the program. And uh, it's so, so there's excitement, but uh, it's not like it used to be many years ago. There was a lot more uh, late decisions and, and signing day decisions. And so it's, it's more uh, things are, are set up much more in advance and decided much more in advance than it used to be. There is Kyle Winningham. When we come back, we're going to switch from Utah football to BYU football. Coming up next, Dylan Cauley, former BYU wide receiver with great bowl stories, bowl games, and why they are awesome. Next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. 
DJ and PK, we are brought to you in part by The Warehouse. Join the big show Friday from 2 to 6 of The Warehouse. They'll be at 1825 South, 300 West in Salt Lake City. Price is so low, it'll blow your mind. Ah, boom. Time to welcome in Dylan Cauley, the former BYU wide receiver. Dylan, good morning. Good morning, fellas. How we doing? Good. I got multiple things I'm ready to run by you. I can't wait to hear your opinion on these things. Are you ready? Lovely. Can't wait. (laughs) So I'm watching BYU. Grind out that 28-14 win over San Diego State. And I thought there were many parts of that game that were pretty predictable and about what you'd expect. And one of them was BYU uh, playing all right, but just no spark. And I thought, you know, okay, emotional letdown. You just lost this game. It went down to the final play, the final yard, all that stuff. There's bound to be a little of a letdown. And they summoned enough to win the game. They're the better team. They won by two scores. But then I'm looking at some of the responses on on Twitter. And um, Brady Papinga thinks that there's a uh, kind of a breakdown of the, you know, lack of explosiveness, a breakdown of the physical conditioning. Guys who were dominating early in the season just physically aren't in a place where they can dominate now. And I wonder... How much of the, of either of those things did you see? Did you see them both? Did you see neither? What was going on there? Uh, well, first of all, I will say that I was actually at the game, uh, and it was beyond freezing. <laughs> and so that could be one aspect uh, of the, right, uh, playing a game in the second week of December in Utah at what? I think it was, it got down to 18 degrees. Um, it is different. That's not like a normal circumstance. And so I think that does have a little bit of an effect on the physical aspect of the game. Um, on the rest of that, yeah, I think guys are a little bit worn out. I think it is tough in a situation to come off a loss and say, hey, uh, how do I, you know, um, how do I get as excited as I was when I was playing for an opportunity to play in, you know, potentially a New Year's Six Bowl or, even having the momentum of playing in a playoff game, and uh, it's it can it can be tough. <laughs> I've never been in that situation, uh, never on a team that good. But I I imagine that you know being able to kind of really stay in a hundred percent and play with that same kind of fire uh, could be a little bit difficult for a team. So we've talked about this uh, several times. After Zach has the great game up in Idaho, you go down the podium and say he's going to go down as one of the best, if not the best, and mm-hmm. and and you you stand by that, and, and you know you're looking like you you got a decent claim to all that stuff. Uh, I wanted to ask you as far as what do you thought about Isaac Rex because he's just a freshman, if I understand it correctly, and mm-hmm. he's to me he's looking good. So how would you evaluate him? against all the other great tight ends that BYU had? Are you prepared to be bold like you were with Zach? Yeah. No, I, I, absolutely. I think, I think Isaac um, – the thing about Isaac is Isaac has the right, – if, if you watch Dennis, you know, uh, in Dennis's juniors and senior year and then in the NFL, there was such an aspect of – what looked to be a natural receiver uh, that made him so great, right? But then you add the physicality and his ability to block. Uh, and that combination is really what makes him, you know, what makes Dennis uh, and, and Chad, you know, the, the best tight ends 
at BYU ever was, was the combination of both. Um, and you're seeing how good of a receiver, right, Isaac Rex is. And as soon as he adds that physicality where, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we only saw Isaac for two more years. Um, it would make sense. Uh, and so, you know, do I think that he's going to put up astronomical numbers in terms of catches and things like that as, um, as Dennis and, and Chad? Maybe not, but I think we'll be able to talk about him in, in that conversation with those two. And I do think that he has the opportunity to have a very, very long NFL career. Uh, if you just look at the kid physically, right? he's, a, he's an absolute specimen. So I, I, like, I like our chances there. When you mention uh, a freshman already leaving early, I think that the youth fans looking at Ty Jordan thinking the same thing. Do you think that we are going to see a, a trend where more players leave early? Because we've seen a little bit of it here. But we haven't seen a lot. Most of the NFL guys have gone after four years of college football. There have been a few exceptions, but most have gone after four years. Is that about to change? Uh, I don't I honestly, I don't think it's about the change. I don't think it's about the change. I think right now is a very special time in terms of talent. If you watch, like, Ty, Ty Jordan is, that dude is unbelievably explosive, right? He has um, some of the things that he's able to do in terms of the breakaway speed, and, and you can just tell, uh, what was it? I think in the fourth quarter, when Colorado turned the ball over and it was like the first play mm-hmm. and he went like 75 yards, right? Like it's those little things that you see in players that isn't just the physical, but also the mental of like, he knows he's going to get the ball, right? And at that moment, as soon as that ball turned over and he knew that, you know, uh, Coach Ludd called his number, it was like, yeah, there's only one option here and that's the score. And that's what separates people from being a good football player, right? And and a division one talent to okay, this guy is what an NFL football player is like physically and mentally. So you got the Boca Raton. And those are uh, rare breeds. Yeah, I would agree with that. And it looks like that's where he's heading. As far as the bowl game goes, you know, it's an opportunity to play a game and you get to go to Florida. So there's some positive. Central Florida's got a program of of some renown here. Obviously they had the great season a couple years back, so they're a decent program, but at the same time, this particular season, they're fourth in the AAC, and their three losses, although they were close, one was literally only one point. Cincinnati, I think, was one score. So it's not like they were blown yeah. out, but they are fourth. Is it sort of a mixed bag as far as what BYU has ahead of them, or how do you look at it? Yeah, I mean, UCF isn't uh, a light, right? UCF is... Uh, in my opinion, right, it would be like the Boise State of the East. Um, they're a lot more talented. They have a lot more athleticism. They have a lot more speed than Boise does. Um, I mean, to be honest, I'm extremely excited about this game because UCF is such a good program, and they have been for the last five or six years consistently. They've put out plenty of NFL talent. Um this isn't just, you know, walking into some Cinderella story like, like Coastal Carolina. Uh, this is a legit program that's, you know, made, made power five, power five teams kind of worry. And, um, 
you have a game that's set up to be an absolute uh, attack through the air. It's going to be a lot of fun. Um, I think it's really going to give BYU the chance to kind of redeem itself from Coastal Carolina. Uh, and it also kind of gives the guys more of that fire that we were kind of talking about in the beginning, right? This game isn't just a, a walk in the park. It's, you know, not just some lousy bowl. Like, you get to be in Florida, it's going to be warm, uh, and the ball's going to get thrown probably uh, 100-plus times, which is always fun to watch. So I'm looking at uh, the night, some of the night scores here. PK mentioned the one-point loss to Memphis. That was 50-49. to They beat Tulane 51-34. Cincinnati game was a 36-33 loss. And they beat USF 58-46. So am I going to assume that the BYU offense should go out there and score 40 points in this game? Yeah, you have to. That's the only, thing that, that's, that's the only way you're going to beat UCF, right, is you have to put – uh, I mean, if you even look at the ones, the, the the close games, right? I think, what was the Cincinnati game? Cincinnati put up like 33 points for them. 36-33, Cincinnati won. Yeah, so so the only chance that you have at winning is putting up more than 30 points, and it's going to be a shootout. Could you explain how much fun it is uh, when you go to a bowl game? Not oh, Obviously, the game speaks for itself. But all the other stuff that the players are going to miss out this year because of the COVID that they're not doing for each of the bowl games. Oh, there is there are very few things. This is how fun bowl games are. We went to the Idaho Potato Bowl in December, and I still consider it like one of the funnest weeks of my life. There is uh, there there are very few things just to be with your team, right? Your family gets to be there. In my case. Uh, you know, even in 2016 when uh, we stayed in Hawaii, right? We Hawaii played in the Hawaii Bowl. And we stayed in Hawaii and got to stay in the uh, Waikiki uh, area and stay at a really nice hotel, the Moana Surfrider. And it was the first year that my wife and I were married. Uh, and being one of two married guys on the team, right, we got, like, the nicest suite in the entire hotel, Right, you get all of the free food. My wife unfortunately had to go to work during the day, and I just got to hang out by the pool and be with my <laughs> friends. Uh, there is, there, there are a few things in this world that are more fun than than bowl games. And so, when guys, you know, like seniors, don't get the chance to really experience and and have to be worried about, oh, am I, you know, being, am I social distance enough? Who's who's uh, maybe watching me, right? These guys are going to have to be on their toes and on their heels the entire time, which doesn't make it as fun. But, you know, when you get to play a team like UCF and, uh, and be in Florida, I guess yeah, that makes up for some of it. I just looked up the Moana Surfrider on uh, on Google Maps to see how close you were to the water. Hey, Yak, four hotels down <laughs> from the Halakalani. Good neighborhood. Yeah. <laughs> Solid neighborhood. That's a exactly. win for you right there, Dylan. <laughs> One hundred percent. Listen, I didn't live more than a mile and a half from the beach for four years, <laughs> so I wake up and look at the snow and wish I was back every single day. 
So how many of these uh, goofy things that we see really resonate with the players? In the Vegas Bowl, I've seen them do stuff uh, downtown. Uh, we've seen, uh, we've seen all-you-can-eat contests, linemen just throwing down massive amounts of food. That, that may sound goofy to some of us, but some of them may really resonate with players. What if those events jumps out at you? Yeah, those are uh, you have 100 what, 103 guys generally traveling to a bowl game and so you've got 103 different personalities. And so to some guys, right, it's you know, uh, a lot of the activities like that are kind of boring and you're just excited to move on to uh, really whatever else, maybe the free time, right? But you do get a few guys uh, that absolutely just love it. Right, it's like their favorite thing in the entire world, which is awesome to see because it's awesome to see everyone in their different environments. And to be honest, the bowl week is really where you get to know a lot of your teammates because you're spending more recreational time with them. Even if you don't hang out with guys outside the locker room, you're now having this opportunity to constantly be around them in this loose, fun uh, environment for four or five straight days. I want your thought on the Utah State situation. I know it's not your school, but, you know, you've been in this state for a long while. Your family has a tradition and a history in this state. Uh, what do you think that the damage could be for Utah State with this idea of, of the president uh, making these comments against the uh, uh, Polynesians, LDS people? Because it seems like, you know, if you want to have a successful program in this state, you better have both of those components. A lot of times those components are one and the same. So you think there will be any long-term damage there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and until the, until the Polynesian culture is represented in a way um, uh, that is respected, right, that is put as a priority uh, at Utah State and by the leadership, they're not going to be able to find a way back, uh, especially with groups, recruits here, um, recruits in the islands, uh, whether it be Hawaii or, you know, in, in the South Pacific, you know, you have now put yourself in a position to kind of expose um, the ignorance, right? And what you truly understand about a people who, uh, <laughs> sorry, I, uh, um, you know, being in being a part of the uh, the UH program and playing for right, we talked about this before. Uh, the reason that I chose to play at Hawaii was because it stood for something greater, right? It was a lot like BYU. It was the closest thing to BYU where we were playing for something more than just a team or a name, uh, and so throughout the last six years being around the Polynesian culture in a way that is, you know, different. And a lot of, uh, you know, people that I would call my family, my brothers are, are Polynesian, my, my, my favorite coaches of all time, and including Norm and, and Kalani, uh, being Polynesian. If, if you don't respect the attributes that they carry uh, if you don't look at what Ken Niamatololo uh, does, if you don't look at what Kalani does, and, and you don't see the absolute greatness uh, to have someone who is fundamentally and culturally committed to being greater and to standing for what's right and to stand for what is family, 
then then yeah, you're pretty much a lost cause. And so I don't see Utah State coming back from this for a very long time. Um, I noticed that they did bring back Chucky Keaton to to the program, and I think that is a step in a direction of hey, at least we're trying to bring people to show that Utah State still does you know hold diversity to to a high standard, um, but to really take full advantage of you know some of the greatest football players and people, you're going to need to show the priority that that the Polynesian culture takes. And sorry, that was a bit of a long answer, but I've been thinking about this all week, and it, it uh, sat with me a little different. Dylan, we appreciate your time and your perspective. Thanks for coming on with us again. Of course, fellas. You guys have a great week. There's Dylan Cauley, former BYU wide receiver, getting a little emotional there at the end, talking about the comments at Utah State, the impact it's having on people as a guy who played at BYU and Hawaii and was around a lot of Polynesian coaches and players, Samoan, Tongan. Uh, you could tell that moved him a little bit there. He got a little bit choked up. All right, when we come back, Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports, National Recruiting Coordinator. Signing day is here. What does he think of the Pac-12, BYU, Utah State? Questions for Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports, National Recruiting Coordinator, next. Take the zone with you wherever you go. Let's go. Download the all-new Zone Sports Network app on your phone and get live streaming of the zone as well as podcast editions of every show. From Salt Lake to Shanghai, Provo to Portugal, or Ogden to Oslo, wherever you go, we'll tag along. Let's go. Download the new Zone app by searching Zone Sports Network wherever you shop for apps. It's the Zone Sports Network app. From 97.5, 1280, The Zone, and The Zone Sports Network. PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone, and we're going to spend a few minutes talking recruiting now with Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports. He's the National Recruiting Coordinator. Brandon, good morning. How you guys doing? Doing well. I am curious, before we get into, the, into any of the specifics, uh, in Utah we had high school football. We know in other states that hasn't happened. Either it will happen in the spring or possibly in some states it won't happen at all. How much has that messed up recruiting this year, aside from the fact that you know there's less on-campus visits and coaches aren't going out to see recruits? I mean, that's a whole other thing, but just the fact that a lot of states didn't even play in the fall. Yeah, I think Utah is obviously the, the focus of jealousy of just about every state out west. You know, not just that they play, but they completed a 14-game season. And you look at a guy like Jackson Dart, who directly benefited from having a season and how his recruitment took off. As a result of that, that's what changed. There's a lot of guys in California and Oregon and, and Washington and Nevada who anticipated a similar type of senior season you know, explosion that would have seen their recruitment take off. And, you know, there's still questions if they'll even play and when they'll play. And it could be well after signing day. I mean, if you think about Washington, Oregon, and Nevada, they may not start playing until March at this point, And signing day will have been a month before. So it definitely helped in the case of players in Utah. But there's a lot of guys out west that have seen their recruitment really just peter out. 
as a result of their not being in football this fall. So I heard a theory, and I want your reaction, that this uh, transfer portal, particularly with the one-time transfer going forward, it's really going to potentially benefit the teams that don't need it, you know, the Alabamas, the Clemsons, and so forth. We know who they are. The theory being that, wow, if they're offering me a scholarship, I need to take advantage of it because I know I'm going to be playing in a winter. I'm going to be playing in the bowl. I'm going to be receiving all sorts of attention, and maybe we get in the playoff. And then if it doesn't work out, well, I don't really lose anything because I can transfer to, depending on you know how good you are, the next tier, two tiers, however many tiers below, and be immediately eligible so I can get out on the field. So I've got to take this chance to go to the biggest of the big time see how it works, and then if it doesn't, well, then I can always go someplace else. I agree, and I think that there that is the mentality, and I, I 100% believe that theory. The flip side of that is, is the execution of that theory still going to be the case when the transfer portal is overflowing? And I think there was a statistic earlier this week that I, I'm trying to remember the numbers, but it was something along the line that like 50 to 60% of guys that go into the portal never come out and they never end up transferring to school. And you run the risk of losing the scholarship at the school that you're at. So there are risks to going into the portal. There are some guys that are high profile enough that they're going to have plenty of opportunities, plenty of options when they go into the portal. Then there's other guys that they go into the portal never to be heard from again. So it is very much a calculated risk. And it's fascinating, too, because the, the other thing I've been hearing a lot more lately is I've heard from a couple Pac-12 schools. They plan to recruit the transfer portal heavy in January and February of 2021 and maybe won't sign as big a classes tomorrow or in February, largely because they'd rather go get guys that are 20, 21 years old that have been at a different university. So they know they've been on a college weight program. They've been in a strength and condition. They've been in a nutrition program. And they're not having to deal with the – extra stuff that often comes in recruiting, you know, the people that are, you know, controlling the recruiting of a recruit, the people that are, you know, more interested in the photo shoots and the uniforms rather than football. These guys now realize this is my last shot. If I don't make this work, then I'm going to end up in D2, D3, NAI purgatory. So I've got to make this work. So you get a little bit more of a serious recruit from the portal. I anticipate we're going to see more players in the portal because of how many players had to commit to schools sight unseen, coaching staff were met via digital, via FaceTime and Zoom and never in person to really get a feel. I think we're only seeing the, the beginning of just how massive the transfer portal is going to be. And on the same time, I think we're going to start to see more schools focus their attention on recruiting the transfer portals rather than still to be determined fates of 17 and 18 year olds. Brandon Huffman joined us, National Recruiting Coordinator. That seems like it could screw up teams down the line, though, if they have too small a freshman class. Uh, or are they just planning on grabbing guys out of the, the, the portal forever? Well, and I think that the other thing that's throwing a, a wrench into this is the NCAA saying that this year essentially doesn't count from an eligibility standpoint. So now you've got 20 incoming freshmen. You have 20 seniors that you would have expected to go out that now are expecting to come back. And yet the NCAA hasn't named a hard number of how many guys can be on scholarship come the 2021 season. So is it 85, which is the limit now? Is it 95? Is it 105? And now schools are worried about filling out their recruiting class because – 
just because the NCAA said there's an extra year of eligibility, the school's on the hook to pay for that. So the Alabama and the LSU's of the world can afford 105 guys on scholarships, but the San Jose States, the Toledos, they may not be able to afford any more than the 85 they're already funding. How do they manage their roster when they've got 20 seniors that don't want to leave? Do they kick them out and now that's used against you negatively in recruiting? Do you try to you know manage the situation? So that's where the NCAA kind of leaves a lot of these schools in the dark. They haven't given them a number. So coaches are essentially trying to manage their rosters without any numbers to work with while trying to keep recruiting younger players, keeping an eye on the transfer portal as if there's not enough to worry about. Now there's still the worry of, are we going to be able to have any of these guys, enough of these guys on our roster come next fall? How are you ranking the top half of the Pac-12 in terms of recruiting? Right now, I think Oregon has got the top spot in the Pac-12, but that could change. USC kind of poised to have what they usually do. I mean, last year was a little bit of an anomaly with USC having so much uncertainty under Clay Helton, you know, whether or not he was going to be retained for another year, especially with the new uh, athletic director coming in. But this year, they really had a big offseason. Well, in terms of recruiting, and now they're 6-0 or 5-0, and whatever they are, playing for the Pac-12 championship. So they're number two right behind Oregon. And kind of a surprise, Cal's had a really good recruiting class coming off their 2019 season where they went to a bowl, beat Stanford for the first time. They're at number three. Utah is at number four, and they're in position to close strong. Obviously, getting Ethan Calvert was a huge pickup for them. Washington is at number five. And then Arizona State, which started off really strong. They're at number six right now. They could still close well. There's a couple of guys that they're in position to at least be in the final two or three, four, including Corey Foreman, who's the number two player in the country by 24-7 sports. He's down to Arizona, USC, Georgia, LSU, and Clemson. But a lot of buzz that he's staying out west. Will it be ASU? Will it be USC? I think that he ultimately ends up at USC. I've seen this movie enough. Uh, but what we're seeing here, too, is that USC kind of restoring order of where they're used to being in the Pac-12 in the top two or three rather than 10th like they were a year ago. Well, I think most kids should go to ASU, just, and that's without any bias, right, DJ? Yeah, right. Good one. <laughs> talking to an ASU grad there, Brandon. Just blow them off and keep moving. <laughs> I miss the Dennis Erickson days because – when Dennis Erickson was there, you'd call a kid on his official or after his official visit, and it would take about 15 minutes before you got the football being discussed on the official visit for the ASU Dennis Erickson days. I don't want to know what those 15 minutes are. <laughs> <laughs> all, all above the cuff, trust me. Uh, sure. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, so I'm curious how you rank these schools because it's easy that there's only a handful of five-star and there's only a couple of handfuls of four-star guys. And so I get how you can sort out USC and Oregon at the top. But there are so many three-star guys. I have a hard time figuring out how you rank teams three, four, five, six, seven. And the Utes who usually rank low and they do have kids coming back from missions and that doesn't factor in. And now I don't know how you're going to factor in transfer portal kids. So translating the the recruiting rankings to the standings seems really difficult unless a USC or Oregon just hits it out of the park. That's pretty obvious. Well, a lot of it is just, you know, guys a lot smarter than me, engineers that created a formula. And so with Oregon and USC, you have 15 four-stars committed to Oregon. You have 12 four-stars mm-hmm. committed to USC. And so we'll, really where you kind of see where, you know, the difference in the caliber of the three-star you signed or that you got from or the caliber of the four-star you got is what 
kind of separates, you know, three through seven or through eight. You know, we could call Colorado's class. They're the seventh-ranked class in the Pac-12. They don't have one four-star commitment. Arizona State is one spot ahead of them with four four-star commitments. So, naturally, Arizona State looks like they have a better class. But, you know, in terms of depth, Colorado has a pretty solid group that's all kind of bunched in together. You, you have classes down at the bottom. Oregon State only has eight commits, so naturally their numbers are going to be low, and none of them are really high profile. UCLA is right above them at 11th. They don't have any four stars you know, in the composite as well. So for a lot of schools, it's more like what is the middle of your class look like? You're going to have some highly ranked guys up at the top when you're in the top four or five in the conference, but really where you start to separate yourself from the top two classes being you know, largely four-star, it's how well have you evaluated and how well have you done in signing and landing commitments from kind of that second-tier guy? There's the high second-tier guys, the guys that are 88s, 89s, that high three-star, just on the cusp of a four-star, but maybe just missing it, as opposed to the guys that are the 80s, that are 81s, that are just barely above, you know, really depth guys that you don't anticipate making much of a dent in their college career, those 88, 89s are three stars. Those 80 and 81s are three stars. But we play with much more value on those guys that are the higher three stars. And that's where you start to see those classes kind of being in that three, four, five, six spot. How much can a team like BYU benefit in the immediacy when they have like a 10 and one season that they're having now? I've long subscribed to the theory that you really see the bump in the following year's class. And I think, you know, you've seen that with Utah. Yeah, they closed well a year ago, uh, especially on the two days after the first signing day on the Thursday and Friday. But you're really seeing the bump of their 2019 season happening with the 2021 class. I think with BYU, their class, you know, maybe won't be the biggest just from a number standpoint, but they're really going to see that bump in the 2022 class. And largely because, you know, there's still like, hey, Kalani is definitely making it known. This is his program. This is what you can expect from BYU football. He's not, I mean, he's going to have his name mentioned for jobs because he's a dang good coach, but he's showing he's not going anywhere. He's staying there. And the more stability you show on a program, you know, rather than coming off the season two years ago where, you know, they were under 500 to now where they were playing for a potential New Year's Six Bowl, I think that that stability really trickles down and resonates with the next class, especially in a pandemic year when more and more guys made early commitments. Tomorrow's going to be one of the most uneventful signing days I've had in a while, largely because there was so much concern and worry with the pandemic. Guys committed a lot earlier without getting to take official visits in the fall. Guys didn't stretch the recruitment out as long as they have. So I think BYU, when they, by the time they had their successful season, so many guys had already made a decision at that point, but maybe that bumped, you know, the, the Logan Fonos of the world, the John Henry Dailies. Maybe that got them, but then that just is a preview into what I really think you'll see them make the move is with those 2022 guys. So obviously uh, there's an investigation going in Utah State into what the president said on a Zoom call with 20 players. Obviously recruits talk to players and all of that, maybe less so with fewer on-campus visits. But how much is all of this going to hurt the Aggie class? How much is the coaching change impacting it? How much are Mountain West schools waiting for the second date to see who's available? Well, I think there's, you know, to answer the first part of the question, I don't know that the investigation is going to move the needle all that much. I think Blake Anderson is going to be tasked with the responsibility of, hey, 
put together a class that you can in the short amount of time that you can really ramp that effort up by February, but hit the ground running. So that 2022 class doesn't show any real gaps in talent. I think the mountain West is, you know, typically the, the program that or the, the, the conference that likes having the early signing period, they can get those guys assigned in December rather than have to worry about them getting wooed and flipped in January or February. And I think the other advantage for a lot of Mountain West schools right now is that with the Pac-12 playing their season still, with games still going on, energy that would have normally been turned towards recruiting is being focused on the season, which makes it that much more difficult for those Pac-12 schools to flip and woo those Mountain West recruits. So I think the Mountain West kind of is enjoying the fact that there's less opportunity for their players to be flipped. Um, but I think that, you know, like is in the case with a lot of late coaching changes in the last few years with the early signing period, you'll sign who you can in December. The guys that really want to be here, they're going to come. But in the case of Utah State, you really try to ramp things up in the next six weeks and try to come up with some semblance of a class that's going to give you a nice little core and a foundation that you can sign in February. Well, Brandon, as always, we appreciate the time. Thanks for uh, giving us a few minutes here. We bet you guys anytime. There's Brandon Huffman, 24-7 Sports National Recruiting Coordinator. When we come back, what is trending? The headlines. Stay with us.